Father, thank you. What a good day this has been. We are grateful for it. But Father, we desire more from you. And so we pray, Father, that as we come together to talk about discernment and judgment, Father, these are things that can be confusing. We hear so many voices saying so many different things. We want to hear your voice. We want to know, Father, what you have to teach us. So, Father, we ask that you would do so, that your spirit would be our teacher today. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we mentioned this morning that there is a great misunderstanding both outside and within the church in regard to what the Bible says about judgment. This will often take the form of a blanket condemnation of judgment by which one loudly and self-righteously quotes the words of Jesus, always in the King James, judge not that ye not be judged. Entirely overlooking the fact that in saying this, they themselves are making a judgment. Or someone will write or speak in such a way as to point out the errors that are being taught by a given person, and inevitably, they will be asked if they have spoken to the person privately. And Matthew 18 will be raised. Go to those who sin privately and show them their sin. There are those who claim that debating ideas in the public arena shouldn't happen unless beforehand someone has done just that. None of these positions reflect biblical teaching regarding discernment or judgment. It's not surprising that people are confused about the matter of passing judgment because some scriptures tell us that we must make judgments and we must be discerning and others warn us not to judge. So how do we take all of these things and put them together in such a way that we don't find ourselves in a mass of self-contradiction. Well, we want to take some time this afternoon and ask those kinds of questions of these particular texts because Scripture does provide straightforward, objective guidelines concerning making judgments And both the commands to judge and the commands not to judge are, in fact, understandable. They are in harmony with one another, and they are to be obeyed. Then, of course, we also want to talk about discernment itself. What does it mean? How do we do it? Well, let's begin uh, by taking our Bibles or a Bible near you perhaps in the pew, and turning to Matthew chapter 7. Matthew chapter 7, beginning with verse 1. I'll read down through verse 5. I'm not reading from the King James, so I'll leave out the ye. Do not judge so that you will not be judged. For in the way you judge, you will be judged, and by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, and behold, the log is in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Now, as we look at that, it would be helpful to go back and look at the context of this, which is, of course, the Sermon on the Mount. In that sermon, Jesus has a lot to say regarding motives and regarding sin. For example, the hypocrite, the hypocrite mentioned in chapter 6, verse 5, prays to be seen by men. 
Uh, that sermon contains warning against anger and lust. Uh, it contains a command to love one's enemies, a warning against the love of money. Jesus is addressing all kinds of sin in this context. He says in Matthew 5, verse 20, I say to you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you shall not enter the kingdom of heaven which is a statement that would have shocked his hearers, certainly, because the scribes and the Pharisees were fastidious in keeping the law of external rules. If you had to exceed their righteousness, then everybody was in trouble. A righteousness greater than theirs could only be the imputed righteousness of Christ that changes the heart. Without Christ's righteousness, of course, we can't enter the kingdom. Given that context, what is the meaning of what we have just read? And the answer is that we are warned against judging how righteous others are in comparison with ourselves. In order to understand that what Jesus says here in the first verse is not a blanket condemnation of all judgment, all you have to do is read verse 5, the last verse that we read, where Jesus says, You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Pointing out the speck in your brother's eye is not wrong. What's wrong is ignoring your own issues and then criticizing someone else for their issues. That's what Jesus is getting at in um, this command not to judge. It it is a warning against self-righteous judgment where we tend to rationalize and minimize our own sin while magnifying the things that we see in other people. That's what Jesus has an issue with here. So Matthew chapter 7 verses 1 to 5 does not teach that we are not to judge at all. In fact, it harmonizes very nicely with everything else we see in scripture, which we should not be surprised about. We are to judge. We are to discern. But we are to do so in humility, not in self-righteousness. This passage concerns people's motivations and the degree of their internal righteousness. These, matters that, these are matters which we are not to judge. We can't read someone's heart. We can't see what is motivating them. Other passages are concerned with judging the content of someone's teaching. And that's what we're talking about when we address the issue of discernment. Let's take a look at the other passage we've mentioned this morning, and that is Matthew chapter 18, or I should say this afternoon now. Maybe I should have had something to eat. In Matthew 18... Jesus is giving us the process by which we call a brother who has been caught in sin to repentance and then have them restored. That's the goal. Restoration individually, restoration to the church, restoration to Christ. We call this church discipline. And this is the process that Jesus himself lays out beginning in verse 15. If your brother sins, go and show him his fault in private. If he listens to you, you have won your brother. But if he does not listen to you, take one or two more with you so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact may be confirmed. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. So what are we dealing with here? We're dealing with the context of the people of God 
in a local community. In order to do what Jesus commands us to do here, you've got to have a personal relationship with a person. You've got to, you're dealing with a person who not only do you know personally, but a person who is involved, a part of the life of the local church. In this immediate setting, it would have been a synagogue, but this is our, the, the context in which it applies for us. Okay? Because you've got to be able to bring two or three or, or one or two more witnesses with you, and you've got to be able to tell it to the church, right, the assembly, and you've got to be able to then exclude them from the assembly if no repentance ever comes. So when people come to Matthew 18 and you have a situation in which there is some well-known leader who teaches falsely, publicly, and other people make known that what he has taught is indeed error, we're not in a Matthew 18 situation. It stopped being private, for one, as soon as that teacher opened his mouth in error, publicly. Well, then it's a public issue already. But we're also not in the context of a local community of believers. When I stand here and I mention names, as I have once or twice, and I talk about my friend Joel, or Kenny, any of the Kennys, Beth Moore, others. When I do that, I am under no obligation to pick up the phone, dial their phone number, and confront them personally. First of all, obviously, it would be a waste of time. They wouldn't take my phone call. But they've already declared themselves publicly. They've already made their error known. And as, and we'll talk about this more in a bit, as a shepherd of God's people, it is my responsibility to warn God's people about the error which is being publicly propagated. So we're dealing with two different issues. Matthew 18 has to do with something that is personal, something that is localized, something that as of yet has not been made public. First thing Jesus says that we are to do is to go to our brother and show him his fault in private. The whole process of church discipline is intended to keep the circle of knowledge regarding someone's sin as small as possible while we call them to repentance. So if someone, if I see someone in the fellowship and they are in sin, my responsibility is to go to them one-on-one. Nobody else knows about it and nobody else should know about it. And if that person listens and they repent, then that is as far as it goes and it remains there and nobody else knows about it. Jesus then says, if they refuse to listen, if they have hardened themselves and they refuse to repent, then what? Then go tell the world. No. No, you just, you you widen the circle a little bit. You take one or two witnesses with you. Not witnesses necessarily to the sin, but witness to the confrontation, to, to, to the uh, attempt at bringing this person to repentance. Now, how many are there within the circle? 
three or four. And if he repents, then it stops. And that's as far as it goes. If he has hardened himself to the point where he won't listen, still, then Jesus says, verse 17, if he refuses to listen to them, then tell it to the church. Again, we're keeping it as small as possible. We're not going out on the street. We're not going into the neighborhood. We're, we're not going out into the world and proclaiming this person's sin. At this point, it's the church. Why? Because the church can then be called to pray and to come to this person seeking their repentance. And if they do repent at that point, that's where it stops. If they've hardened themselves and they will not repent, then what? This person is put out of the church. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let them be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Treat them like a Gentile and a tax collector. What does that mean? It doesn't mean you write them off and you never talk to them again. It means you treat them as an unbeliever who need to hear the gospel. Because they need to be brought to repentance. And their lack of repentance after this whole process is their own confession that they are not a believer. And so they're put out of the church because the church is to be comprised only of believers. Now, that doesn't, that doesn't mean that we can read someone's heart and make a hard and fast decision on whether or not they're a believer. Right? We are told to treat them that way. Let him be to you as a Gentile or a tax collector. Doesn't mean they are. It means this is that final, ultimate step by which we are seeking repentance. We're hoping that God, through this person being put out of the church, will be brought to a state of repentance and then restoration But if after all this, someone is still not willing to repent, then you've got to, you're going back to the very beginning. They don't, they don't understand their need of the gospel. They don't understand their need for the blood of Christ to cover their sin. They don't understand their need to repent. So we're not going to make any assumptions about their spiritual state. We're going to treat them as if they are unbelievers. What God knows them to be is something different. What we hope is that God will bring them back. And if they are genuine believers, the teaching of Scripture is that he will bring them back. But he disciplines those whom he loves, and sometimes that discipline is through the church. Now, everything I've just described is what happens within the local body of Christ, the, the church. It has nothing to do with a guy in California or Texas or Florida who stands up in his pulpit and has himself beamed all over the world while he preaches heresy. I don't have to be flying around the country confronting these people. What I need to be doing is warning you. And in order to do that, I need to discern, and I need to judge. So that's what we're dealing with here. That's what we're, we're, we're talking about. This is not self-righteousness. If I stand up in this pulpit, there is the possibility that on an occasion... I may say something that isn't true. I may misinterpret a text 
I may misspeak. At that point, it is the responsibility of every one of God's people listening to me to discern what is true from false. And if I have spoken falsely, then it is the responsibility of God's people to come to me and to make me aware of that and to call me to repentance. I'm not, put it in a different context, I'm not a pope. I make no claims to infallibility. I I think that I work hard and responsibly in order to bring to God's people his word in an accurate manner. It doesn't mean I won't blow it at some point. Particularly as I'm getting older, You know, things slip a little bit. You know, who knows what's going to happen? Who knows what's going to come out of this mouth one day? That's why, you know, it was the same when when David was here and now with Joe. They have strict instructions that when I'm standing here and I cease making sense, they're to drag me out of the pulpit. Right? But short of that, I can still say something wrong. And I trust that when someone comes to me and makes me aware of that, that I would be humble enough to say, you know what? What I said last week, I've been shown that that wasn't entirely correct. Let me go back and let's look at that again. Because I, I would hope, now I've got it, as much or more pride than the next guy. But I would hope that I'm not so wrapped up in myself that I would resist correction. But that's again in this local context. Something which is broadcast something which is written in a book, something which is intentionally made public. I don't have an obligation to go to the person. Now, I, I might do what I can. Might send them a letter, right, an email. I don't know if they would reach these people that we're talking about. I could do that. But I don't have to do that before I come to you and say, I want you to know what this person said and I want you to know why it's wrong. And I want you to know why you shouldn't follow people like this. So, if it's proper to discern and judge, which it is, how do we do that? One thing I read, which I think was very insightful, is that we should not set the bar so low. Don't set the bar so low so that you only stop listening to people if they can be properly called false teachers. Lots of people are teachers who are simply misguided and unhelpful, but might not come under the ban of being called a false teacher necessarily. Set your standards high in regard to who you take as your teachers. Listen to people who are truly God-centered, people who are Christ-exalting, people who are Bible-saturated, people who are dependent upon the Spirit, people whose lives bear the mark of Christian authenticity. You should not be one of those people who says, you know what? Not everything he says is bad. We talk about eating the meat and spitting out the bones. 
Well, to continue with that metaphor, some people are a lot more bony than others. And you should not waste your time with teachers who have a lot of bones when there are other teachers that have few. Seek out those teachers. But we're talking about identifying false teaching and false teachers. So let me give you four biblical standards by which we can assess whether someone is a false teacher. Now, if we, we're not going to do this, we could you know, get into the weeds even deeper and make distinctions between a false teacher and a heretic. There is a distinction to be made there. But if you're trying to avoid false teachers, you'll also avoid heretics. So we'll just speak of this generally this afternoon. Scripture tells us that we ought to be on the alert that we ought to be wary because people are going to come into the church and they are going to teach falsely. So, how do we tell? Well, we can call the first test the fruit test. Let's come back to Matthew chapter 7. Matthew chapter 7, beginning with verse 15, says this, Beware of the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruits. Grapes are not gathered from the thorn bushes, nor figs from thistles, are they? So every good tree bears good fruit, but the bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot produce bad fruit, nor can a bad tree produce good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So then you will know them by their fruits. Now, Paul put a huge premium on this principle of holiness and righteousness in his own um, discussion of the gospel and of false teachers, Paul understood, as did Peter, that life goes along with doctrine. And if you look at someone's life and their life does not exhibit Christian holiness, we're going to talk about this more in a bit, then you need to look very closely at the doctrine. Paul often talks about those who are false teachers who are also living falsely. Here's, let me just share with you what Paul says here in 1 Thessalonians, for example. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 5. He's talking about the gospel that he brought to the Thessalonians. Our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit with full conviction, just as you know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. Paul's writing to the Thessalonians, say, remember how we lived among you. Our life matched what we preached. And then he takes two chapters to unpack that. You know what men we prove to be, so judge us by our lives, Paul says. Now, of course, it's not always easy to see the behavioral fruit of a teacher, especially you know, people you're watching on television or the internet which is why you need to focus your spiritual life here in the church. A real live human being, flesh and blood, in-person church 
with a real live preacher whom you know. That's why what God is doing in the world is focused upon the local church. I have had people come to me and say, you know what, my pastor is this guy or that guy or the other guy, somebody on television. And I say, well, then you don't have a pastor. You don't have a pastor. Pastor is someone you can talk to. A pastor is someone you can call. A pastor is someone you can ask to come see you. A pastor is someone who will be looking at your life and you can look at their life. You will know them by their fruits. Years ago, um, Many of you weren't here at, at that point, um, but I've told this before. When we were going through a difficult time here, and the church was coming together to decide the future of the church and the future of me at the church. One of the things I said at this particular congregational meeting was there, there are certain reasons for dismissing a pastor. And scripture is very clear about it. Number one, are they simply unfit? You know, some pastors, after a period of time, it becomes evident they never should have been a pastor in the first place. They just don't have the gifts. They, it's just something's gone haywire along the way, and you know, nobody ever said <laughs> this really isn't for you. But eventually that becomes evident. Maybe they're just, as I think I put the term, ministerially incompetent. Well, if so, okay. You know, they can do something else with their lives, but the church shouldn't be afflicted with a man who is incompetent in ministry. The other, or one other, of course, we'll talk about this next, is false doctrine. They turn out to be heretics. Get rid of them. The other is sin. A life characterized by sin. And sin from which either they won't repent or sin that is so grievous as to disqualify them from ministry. Get rid of them. Right? And some people might say, oh, this sounds so mean. No. It is the most loving thing you can do for Christ's church and for his reputation in the world. Know them by their fruits. How are you going to do that? You do that because the people you're examining are not the people out there. They're the people in here primarily. But we all know the truth comes out for the people out there. Right? Know them by their fruit. If their fruit is their mansion and their jet, well, that's their fruit. So that's the first test, the fruit test. Here's the doctrine test. This is second. The test of sound central doctrine. For example, the doctrine of the incarnation. Turn over to 1 John chapter 4. First John chapter 4, beginning with verse 1, says this, Beloved do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. Because many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this, you know the spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh 
is from God, and every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, of which you have heard that it is coming, and now it is already in the world. We need to measure the doctrines that are being taught by, obviously, the scripture. So when you hear some of these prosperity teachers, and they start talking about Jesus needing to be born again, not just red flags, sirens should be going off. When you listen to T.D. Jakes, as he years ago was being interviewed concerning the Trinity, and he was desperately trying to avoid the questions because he's a Unitarian and not a Trinitarian. He denies the Trinity. When you see someone who cannot give you a straight answer about basic foundational historic Christian doctrine, you should be discerning. That's one of the ways that you discern. If someone denies that Jesus, and this is what John's dealing with here, someone denies that Jesus Christ is God in the flesh, that is, he is God and he is man, that one, John says, is a false prophet. He doesn't mean to say that you need to know all the details about the incarnation. That's not the point. He's dealing with a particular issue in the church, and on that issue, confessing that Christ has come in the flesh meant that you were speaking the truth of God because the other ones, the false prophets who were coming in, were denying that, as many have. So you go back through the history of the church and you look at controversies like the Arian controversy. And Arius comes along and, and he, start, he, he reads what Augustine says about the necessity of grace, that everything that we are, everything that we do, our salvation in every respect has to be by the grace of God. He reads what Augustine says about that and he's horrified because he thinks it's denigrating man, which it is, that's the whole point. He understood that. And so he starts teaching. He starts teaching about the fact that man is essentially innocent. It's possible for man to be, um, I'm sorry, I'm getting my heretics confused. Um, this is Pelagius. Right? Arius had another heresy, and his heresy had to do with Christ. That Christ is not God come in the flesh. When John was dealing with this, there was this Gnostic teaching going on where Jesus was seen to be as some kind of phantom. He didn't even really die on the cross. It just appeared that way. So not really flesh. So you're, you're, the church was dealing with all these things, and the way the church dealt with it was to come up with creeds and confessions to say, if you can't agree to this, it's because you're a false teacher, because you're teaching heresy. And so when I look at that interview with T.D. Jakes, and he's asked if he believes in the Trinity, and he can't just give a yes, but he spends 10 minutes trying to avoid an answer, that gives me my answer. If you believed it, you would just say so. Paul emphasized this doctrinal importance when he wrote to Timothy, 1 Timothy um, chapter 6. And he's writing to Timothy. Of course, he has installed Timothy as essentially the pastor at the church of Ephesus. 
And he's writing both First and Second Timothy to give him counsel on how to conduct his ministry. And he says in chapter 6, verse 3, If anyone advocates a different doctrine and does not agree with sound words, those of our Lord Jesus Christ, and with the doctrine conforming to godliness, he is conceited and understands nothing, but he has a morbid interest in controversial questions and disputes about words, out of which arise envy, strife, abusive language, evil suspicions, and constant friction between men of depraved mind and deprived of the truth, who suppose that godliness is a means of gain. In other words, we need to measure the doctrines that are being taught by the sound words of Scripture, and we need to see their implications for godliness. So in that sense, you have those two things put together, the fruit test and the doctrine test, because they are connected. Third test is this, the scripture test. And it is the test of submission to scripture. Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verses 37 and 38, if anyone thinks he is a prophet or spiritual... He should acknowledge that the things I am writing to you are a command of the Lord. If anyone does not recognize this, he is not recognized. Which is pretty amazing. You see Paul's own understanding of his authority as an apostle. If someone, I mean, how arrogant does this sound? If anybody disagrees with me, they're out. They're not recognized as a legitimate teacher if they disagree with me. If they come and they say, I think Paul's wrong on this point, don't listen to them. Show them the door. I told a story before, when I was in seminary, up the street from our seminary was a very, very liberal seminary, Eilif School of Theology, I believe it was called, the most radical liberal seminary of the United Methodist Church. But they had a decent library. So every now and then I'd go up and I'd use their library. And I was there one day and I was listening, yes, I was eavesdropping, um, on a conversation between one of their professors and one of their, their students. And the student was saying to the professor, he was explaining how he thought Paul was wrong on this or that issue. And the professor was agreeing with him. And I was like, well, okay, I'm, I'm at the right school then. Because <laughs> you never would have heard that conversation at the seminary I was attending. Uh, but that's, that was the attitude. In, liberal, in theological liberalism, they feel perfectly free to disagree with Scripture. If anybody comes and disagrees with scripture, they've disqualified themselves. That's really as far as you need to go. If your discernment is such that you can hear someone say, I think Paul was wrong, or I think scripture is wrong on this point or that point or the other point, your discernment should at least be that basic. To say, when someone disagrees with the word of God, I'm not going to listen to them. They've just revealed who they are. John said it this way in 1 John 4, 6. We are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. John says the same thing Paul does. He says, hey, church, we're apostles. That means something. It means we are the authoritative teachers. And for us, now that the apostles are long gone, we have their writings, which are the authoritative teachers for us. The apostles elevated their teaching to the level of a test of truth. If a person does not submit his thinking and his teaching to the authority of the apostles, then they are not going to be reliable teachers. It doesn't mean they won't sometimes say true things. 
Satan says true things in order to slip in the error. Everybody says true things from time to time. That doesn't make them reliable teachers. The scripture is our authority and everything is judged according to the standard of scripture. Fourth, and finally, there is the gospel test. And Paul is very much concerned with this one. Galatians chapter 1, verses 8 and 9. Even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to what we have preached to you, he is to be accursed. As we have said before, so I say again now, if any man is preaching to you a gospel contrary to what you have received, he is to be accursed. And the gospel that he had in mind when he said that was the gospel laid out here in the book of Galatians. And it's the gospel of justification by faith alone. Apart from works of the law, he sums it up like this in chapter 5, verses 2 and 3. Behold, I, Paul, say to you that if you receive a circumcision, Christ will be of no benefit to you. And I testify again to every man who receives circumcision that he is under obligation to keep the whole law. In other words, if you insist on law-keeping as a way of becoming justified before God, you've got to keep it all. That's how it works. And you've got to keep it perfectly. And then he ends with that terrible warning in verse 4. If this is how you think, then you have been severed from Christ. You are who are seeking to be justified by law. You have fallen from grace. And what's he saying there? I mean, are these people who were genuinely saved and then now and now somehow they're unsaved? Well, no. He's saying, when I came to you, I came to you with the true gospel. And you claim to believe it then. But if you leave that gospel for the gospel that the false teachers are preaching, then outwardly it might look like you're falling from grace. The reality is if you stay in the false teaching, you're revealing yourself to have never been saved at all. And you are severed from Christ. That's a powerful word. Severed from Christ. That word came to mean a lot to me when I cut my thumb off. (laughs) And afterwards, I, I was reading this. And it just hit me like it had never hit me before. Because I experienced what a severing means. It's a complete departure. I don't know what happened to the other half of my thumb. But it's not around anymore. It's not mine. It's severed. It's gone. And there's no putting it back. So there are at least four biblical tests for false teaching. The test of the fruit of behavior, the test of sound doctrine, the test of submission to scripture, and the test of teaching the pure gospel of justification by faith. And I would end by simply reminding us that the best way to protect ourselves from false teachers is to do what we're doing here to be a part of a healthy Bible-preaching church and to be prayerfully saturated with the Scripture day in and day out. Now, if anyone would like, we can spend some time talking about these things. Anne.
Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Sure. Um, it is, I find that sometimes that's the most difficult person yeah. to share the gospel with because they believe they have the gospel. Mm-hmm. Uh, what are some ways to be more effective with the person in that step? Right. Yeah. Let's, let's just come back a, a step or two first. Um, what we need to understand that there are different levels of false teaching. Okay. So as I mentioned in passing earlier, we can make a distinction between error and heresy. Heresy would be a, something which is a denial of the gospel at its core. Heresy would be, be a denial of the nature of God. Okay. Error would be sprinkling babies. Okay. Different categories. Okay. Error would be thinking that you can lose your salvation once you have it. It's error, it's not good, it's not healthy, it's not going to um, enable one to progress to maturity in those areas, but it's not something that would preclude someone from being saved. If you're dealing with issues of who God is and what the gospel is, those are issues that have an impact on salvation which is what Paul is saying there in Galatians 1. Now, when you're dealing with people who are in error, how do you try to make progress with them? How do you, you know, try to explain their error and show them truth? And the only, first of all, again, a step back. First of all, this is ultimately the work of the Holy Spirit. So we trust in him and we pray. Right? I'm not going to give you any you know, wonderful novel answers you haven't heard before. You pray. Right? Start there. Secondly, you don't try to correct them. Try to let the word correct them. Okay. So if we're dealing with those that we believe are Christians then I would hope that they would honor the word. And I'm just, I just want to bring them back to the word and let the word do its work. So, you know, if they're in error here, I'm going to, you know, show them this scripture. If they're in error on this, I'm going to take them here. I'm going to show them how the scripture as a whole you know, refutes their position. And let the Bible do it rather than me. Because when I get myself into the picture, now it becomes personal. And now it becomes, you know, unfortunately, um, for many people, it, it, it turns into trying to win an argument. Rather than trying to discern what the scripture is teaching. Now, I don't care about winning an argument. I care about truth. I care about people coming to understand what the scripture teaches. We live in a day, of course, where when you disagree with someone, they immediately take offense. And when you try to show them their error on a given point, um, it can very readily turn into you know, sides in a battle. And I want to avoid that. So I want to try to present what the scripture teaches without setting up sides. Because if I'm dealing with someone who is in error, right? And so here's another distinction to make, right? Is this someone who is in error or is this the one who is teaching error? Because that's difference too. So from your question, I think we're dealing with... with someone who is in error, but they're not necessarily one who is propagating 
that error. Now in that case, I am on that person's side. I want the best for them. I want them to come to an understanding of the truth. And I want that to come across. At that moment, you know, I'm, here's my fight. I'm trying to tamp down my nature because my nature wants to debate. But that's not what this person needs. And if I want to love them, if I want to be on their side, it's not a debate that I want to engage in. I just want to open up and let them see what the scripture says and let the spirit of God do the rest. Does that help at all? Okay, thanks. Anyone else? Yeah, Mike. Exactly, exactly. Yeah, very good. You know, we've, uh, I, I envision different people when I'm talking about situations like this. So I, 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 I'm envisioning a situation arising in a church in which a false teacher comes to the fore and he's intent on spreading his falsehood and putting roots down into this particular church. But then there's him and there's others in the church who don't have discernment and who are listening, thinking maybe he's got a point. And they're in danger of following this error. I'm going to be dealing with those people in very different ways. That false teacher will not be tolerated. That false teacher is going to be put out. He is not going to be given a hearing. But I'm going to go to those who were tempted by that falsehood. And I'm going to sit down with them and gently, I would hope, explain to them why that person was wrong and where the danger is. Two different kinds of people, and they need to be dealt with differently. But it all has to start with the discernment. You have to know that someone is teaching falsely in order to deal with it on any basis. Anyone else? Less chance. Yeah, yeah Joe. Instead, he even exposed. 
Right. Right. So the, the rule of thumb is the correction of sin goes as far as it is known. So if you're dealing with a teacher, by definition, you're dealing with something that has become public to one extent or another. Now, I can, if, if a false teacher arises in the church, our responsibility is to go to him and confront him. It could be very possible that he doesn't understand his error. And when it's explained to him, perhaps we would hope he would repent. If it's a, if it's a false teacher like that, it can't just stay there because it's already been public. And so that person, it would be incumbent upon them um, to publicly repent and then to deal with that teaching which he propagated and to counter it and explain why this is not, necess- this is, this is not going to be permitted in the church. Uh, because it is error. Now, that person is still forgiven upon their repentance and they're still restored. They would not be restored in any way to a teaching position. They would have demonstrated that they are unqualified for that. But they would certainly be restored to fellowship within the church if they repented. But again, if it's widely known then it's dealt with on that basis. If it's happening within a Bible study and it hasn't gone any further than that, that's where it's going to be dealt with. If it's on a wider basis and the whole church knows what was going on, it's going to be dealt with on a church-wide basis. So we're, we're, we're wanting to, um, you know, as Paul says, to expose. Now we have to ask the questions, you know, all right, what what is the exact situation here? Is that something just with our church? Is this something that is broader societally or you know, uh, concerning the church nationwide or perhaps worldwide? Right? So T.D. Jakes, Benny Hinn, you know, all the rest of them. Well, you can expose that anywhere, anytime, uh, and you would be doing so in obedience to what Paul's talking about here. Absolutely. I, I, I think, you know, as you mentioned T.G. Jakes in this, this regard, um, he just checks off so many of those boxes. Um, you could make a case that he checks off all of them. You know, you've got fruit. Well, what's his fruit? His fruit is he's propagating wickedness and evil. Um, the scripture, well, he's denying the scripture, saying that he's come to a better understanding than what the scripture says. Right? So you've, you've got you know, those things there. It's certainly an, a, a gospel issue. Because if you're not going to call people from repentance, uh, to repentance from their sin, and he's not, he can't do that if he says, what they're doing is not actually sin. How are they going to repent of it unless they understand that it's sin? Well, all right, he's not preaching the gospel. Obviously, his doctrine is out of kilter. Uh, He doesn't have a proper doctrine of man, doesn't have a proper doctrine of marriage, doesn't have a proper doctrine of the church. 
let alone a proper doctrine of God as we discussed before. So all of those issues that we spoke about, he fails. Right? So, you know, he's, uh, he's another one. But that's how this issue of discernment functions. Right? Let's take what people are saying, what they are teaching, and run them through the grid. What do we know about their life? What do we know about their... Their, their doctrine, what do we know about their underst- their, that, uh, uh, know about whether or not they submit to, to scripture? What do we know about how what they're teaching affects the gospel? Those are the steps. And of course, you know, we can go a lot further than that, but those are very basic. If we have that, then we're on the road to being able to discern truth from error. Okay. All right. Well, thanks for staying around. I appreciate it. Father, thank you for today. We are so grateful to be in your house with your people. We're grateful, Father, for your word. We're grateful for the spirit who teaches. We pray you would make us discerning people, not judgmental people, not self-righteous people, but those who are discerning so that we can help others, Father, to be discerning as well and to know truth from error. Thank you, Father. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks, everyone.